All right, if you would turn again to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We've been talking about what I call the Great Reset, and as I've mentioned, it, that title refers to three things, the rebellion of mankind over the centuries, and that at various times and in its various ways, uh, sinful mankind is sought to unite in order to establish some kind of utopia apart from God. And we can see things going on in our world today that are, are the current manifestation of that spirit. But the only true reset, only true uh, paradise, utopia that can be established is only at the return of Christ. Only God can rid the world of evil and bring about the heaven on earth that we desire. But there is a personal kind of reset that Acts chapter 2 talks about, which is repentance. And it is the way that we... Um, appropriately respond to mankind's rebelliousness and how we appropriately respond to the promised reset at the return of Christ. And so let me read for us again from Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36. Excuse me. It says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved." So what we have here, especially in these latter verses of Acts chapter 2, is a picture. It's a picture of the early church. It's a description of life in the church at Jerusalem right after the day of Pentecost, after Christ has been risen from the dead, gone back to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, Peter's preached his sermon, and then this is a picture of what life was like in the early church. Well, it's helpful to understand that you could say the, the... backdrop or the the matting for the picture, uh, so to speak, is a perverse generation because uh, Peter says, uh, repent, which is a change of mind that results in a change of life, to reorient your life according to God and the promised kingdom of God and all that Christ has done for us. He says to repent 
and and then we are to uh, be delivered from what he calls a perverse generation, a crooked generation. So this kind of lifestyle is to be lived in a world that isn't living this way, that very much is actually applying pressure to live a different way. And that's why I'm calling what we're talking about now a kind of framework. If you, if you think about the picture, uh, or a literal picture, you've got the description of the early church, you've got the the matting of the perverse generation, then you've got the four sides of the frame. And you can think of those as four kinds of pressure that are being put on this church to cause it to collapse, to cause it to not live the way that we see it described as living here. And so out of the four of these, two of these could be considered very general pressures. Two of them are you could call more specific kinds of pressures. And there's other things we could talk about, but because of uh, what we find in Acts chapter 2, I've selected these things, and because of what you see in Acts as well in the rest of Scripture, I just wanted to highlight these four kinds of pressures and how God calls us to live in light of them to give us a kind of framework for uh, what is happening here in Acts chapter 2 before next Sunday we get into exactly what that looks like and how it should look for us. So last week, we talked about being patient in light of the pressure of suffering. The word for pressure, or or, excuse me, tribulation, is the idea of pressure, like the crushing of grapes. And so one of the things that is something that we all experience in various ways is the pressure of suffering. And so we talked about the fact that we are called to live patiently, in the face of suffering, waiting for God to fulfill his promises of full and lasting joy. But this isn't heaven on earth right now. That's coming later. Right now, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of suffering that we need to endure. And that's why we looked at James chapter 5. I mentioned Joel Osteen last week who said, As as a Christian, I should expect preferential treatment. Well, James in James chapter 5 says, No, as a Christian, you should expect persecution. You should expect trials. You should expect suffering, not preferential treatment from the world. Um, In James, it also says that we count those blessed, truly happy, who endured suffering, who didn't uh, reject God and walk away, who, who did not, even when tempted, curse God and die. Like Job was under much pressure of suffering, and his wife said, just curse God and die, speaking for Satan, because that's what Satan was out to do. Satan's out to get us to curse God and die, but he didn't do that. He was faithful. He endured his suffering, the pressure of it, even though it was hard. And I mentioned someone named Paul Maxwell, who used to write for Desiring God, who said, many things would be easier without Christ which is kind of an interesting statement, but there's a lot of truth to that. Because things do get more difficult in various ways when you embrace Christ. There is suffering that comes from being a Christian that you would not have if you weren't a Christian. And so there's a sense in which, yes, things are harder in this fallen world if you embrace Jesus. But James says, remember, God is compassionate and merciful And he's going to bring much good out of your suffering. 
And truly happy, truly blessed are those who endure that suffering rather than walking away from Christ. Which just reminds us this picture that we find in Acts is not a picture of a suffering-free zone. It's not a, like I said last week, it's not a Facebook post type thing where we're to walk away thinking everything's great. No, there, there's a lot of sin there. There's a lot of suffering there. And we see that as we read through the book of Acts and through the book, through the rest of the New Testament as well. And so being patient, long suffering is important as we think about trying to live the way that they lived in Acts chapter two. Another thing that we t- highlighted last week is that we need to be ordinary in a sense in light of the pressure of being extraordinary like extraordinary saints. Now this is sort of a, a a very specific kind of pressure that I think is helpful to talk a little bit about because when you read the book of Acts you can walk you can walk away thinking that everybody was like Paul. Everybody did what Paul did. Everybody was a great uh, champion of the faith like Paul. When the reality is, yes, there were outstanding, extraordinary people like Paul and Peter in the book of Acts, but most people were very ordinary people. They weren't extraordinary. They lived ordinary lives in ordinary villages, in ordinary churches, doing ordinary things. They weren't going around healing people like Peter and Paul. They were doing very ordinary things. And that's why we looked at 1 Thessalonians 4, because on, on the one hand... We are to embrace things that are radical, like abstinence from sexual sin. That's a radical thing. That is a radical way we're to be different from the world around us. And yet Paul could say, make it your ambition to live a quiet life and attend to your own business and work with your hands. It's a very ordinary kind of thing. Just live a quiet life. Um, just be faithful to your responsibilities, faithful to your family, faithful to your job, and just... Uh, Live out your life in a very quiet sort of way. And so um, I highlighted last week Josh Harris who took the approach that in some sense we need to re- repent of what God says is how we're supposed to abstain from sexual immorality. When Paul says, no, we need to embrace it or we reject God. If we reject that standard, then we reject God in the process. Um, and as I highlighted with regard to the second part of the whole issue of ambition, many would say we need to live radical lives. In one sense, yes, but in another sense, Paul would say you need to live just a faithful, ordinary life. And I say that because we can go around with a sense of false guilt that says because I'm not like Hudson Taylor, because I'm not like John Piper, or because I'm not like any other uh, outstanding person in history, whether it's Paul or Peter or anybody else, because my life isn't like that, because I'm not like that, because I'm not doing exactly what they did, then I am, I am somehow not what God has called me to be. Well, I think Paul would say that's not true. Paul didn't say, do what I'm doing. He didn't say... You know, go from town to town preaching the gospel. He said, live a quiet life right where you are. Work with your hands. Be faithful where you are. And so it's important 
that we think along those lines, lest we come away with the wrong idea from the book of Acts, what it looks like to be faithful and to be pleasing to God in our everyday life. Which brings us to the last two that I want to touch on briefly today, and that is be different. Be different in the light of the pressure to be the same. And if you would turn to 1 Corinthians 12. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see Paul encouraging us to be different. Um, in the book of Acts, as I mentioned, you, you read um, primarily about Peter and Paul with regard to the apostles. We don't even read much of anything about the rest of the apostles. But we read a lot about Peter and even more about Paul. And it says in Acts 9 that the Lord Jesus came to to Paul and said, you're my chosen instrument. You are a chosen instrument of mine to do something that I haven't called anybody else to do. And sometimes we think that uh, we're supposed to be just like uh, Paul. Well, there are ways in which we're to be similar in terms of our faith, in terms of our hope, in terms of our love, but not in terms of all that we do in practice and in activity and in ministry and calling. And that's why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And so if you think about what Paul is saying there, he's using the image of a body. We can all think about our own bodies, and we realize that, uh, we have one body, but my body has many parts, and those parts do different things. And so in one sense, we're, you know, a body is similar in that it's connected, there's a unity about the body, there's a similarity in the sense that we're all, you know, all of our bodies uh, form a unit, and that unit is connected in various ways, and yet there's a difference within the diversity of our body. And so he's highlighting the fact that uh, just like the body is unified in one sense, has similarities in one sense, and yet is diverse, um, in the body of Christ, in the church, you have people who are the same in terms of their hope, their, hope, their faith. We're, we're all trusting in Jesus and Jesus alone to forgive us of our sins and to make us right with God. We're all hoping in God to give us the help we need and the happiness our hearts long for. We're all depending on the Holy Spirit to enable us to do what we can't do ourselves. So there's important, true similarities between all of us that without that, we would not be a part of the body of Christ. But those similarities make us a part of the body of Christ. And yet, By the Holy Spirit, we have distinctive things about us, different 
functions, different giftings, and yet we need each other. And it would not be good if we were all the same. And yet we can wrestle with the fact that God hasn't gifted us in certain ways and hasn't given us certain responsibilities, which is kind of interesting. Calvin would talk about the fact that um, that member, therefore, which will not rest satisfied with his own station will wage war with God. Basically, he's saying that if I don't like how God has gifted me and called me to function in the body, I'm at war with God. Because I have not embraced the fact that I am not a Paul. I am not a Peter. Or whatever it may be. And therefore, I'm rejecting God's design in my life. Um, And therefore, he talks about every one of us should discharge the duty of his own station. Be content to do what God has gifted you and called you to do. And recognize that it's important. It's needed. And we should not talk like, you know, the... Um, you know, the foot that says, well, since I'm not a hand, then I, I'm, I don't want to be a foot. <laughs> I don't want to do it, you know, if I can't be what this other person is. Um, and so there's this pressure of being the same. And it was interesting, I was doing some reading on Abraham Piper, who's one of the sons of John Piper, who has walked away from the faith. All that I'm talking about right now is meant to Encourage us to be faithful. That's why I'm bringing up these people that have walked away. It's because the kinds of things, these pressures are things that are pushing us away from Christ and away from the church. And one of the things that Abraham Piper said, interestingly enough, in one of his TikTok videos is he says, Do you know how boring and soul-sucking it is to base your whole life on making sure other people change to become more like you? I just thought about that. I tried to imagine someone who's resentful toward the church, resentful toward his upbringing, and tried to understand it in light of that comment. And he seems to be saying, my experience of the church, my experience of evangelical Christianity, he would call it fundamentalism or fundy Christianity. He would say, my experience of that is it's, it's a pressure to, to make everybody the same. Now, there's some truth to that because we said you can't be a part of the body of Christ unless there's some similarities with regard to faith and hope and love. And yet, Paul is speaking against the idea of taking it further than that and requiring everyone to be an eye. Because if everyone's an eye, then you can't hear a thing. If everyone's an ear, then you can't see a thing. And so there are problems with everybody being the same and and so Abraham Piper seems to be, in some sense, reacting to what he hears as everybody has to be just like this. And then when people think, well, there's no way I can be just like that, so maybe this just isn't for me. It's a pressure that we need to be aware of. Um, Paul says in verse 21, The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. I've mentioned the story before where Winston Churchill during World War II was trying to get the labor leaders and the coal miners to produce more coal for the war effort. And he painted a picture for them. He said, one day when the war is over, we're going to have a a parade. 
And in that prey, there's going to be the sailors who did what they did on the water for the war effort. There are going to be the soldiers who defeated Rommel and others in various places. Uh, there are going to be the pilots who, you know, uh, uh, took down the German planes and protected England throughout the war. And then he said, last of all, would come a long line of sweat-stained, sweat-streaked men in miners' caps. Someone would cry from the crowd, and where were you during the critical days of our struggle? And from 10,000 throats would come the answer, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. And the person sharing this illustration said, the reality is there are some very public kinds of service, and there are some very private kinds of service in the body of Christ. But whether it's very public or very private, whether it's a well-known thing or a almost unknown thing, it's crucial to the functioning of the body of Christ. And therefore, it's not only okay to be different in the body of Christ, it's necessary to be different in the body of Christ. Not everyone is meant to be Paul or Spurgeon or Hudson Taylor. Some of us are meant to do some of the kinds of things they did, but not everyone is meant to do that. And that's important as we go through the book of Acts and to talk about how do we fulfill the Great Commission? Well, the Great Commission wasn't given to individuals. It was given to the church as a whole. It was given to the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ functions as the body of Christ, it fulfills the Great Commission. And so if you're like a miner with his face to the coal in the body of Christ and people aren't even sure what you're doing, you're still a part of fulfilling the Great Commission. That's the important part of what we need to see and what we need to think about as we wrestle with what does it look like as a church to actually fulfill what God has called us to fulfill in his church. The last thing is not only to be patient, ordinary, and different, but all of that is a way of talking about the importance of being faithful. And it's being faithful in light of the pressure of pleasures or the pressure of the kinds of things that would seduce us from being faithful to Christ. And so if you would turn to Matthew 24, and I just want to read again a portion of this scripture just to remind us of the fact that uh, when you look at what the Lord Jesus said in the Gospels about the end times, what we call eschatology, it revolves around two things. It revolves around encouraging us to be alert to what's going on around us. And secondly, to be faithful as we wait for the return of Christ. And so we'll go all the the way back to verse 32 of Matthew 24 where it says, Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. You too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. 
so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time, and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth." If you go on and read in Matthew 25, there are two stories. One is the story of the parable of the ten virgins, which highlights the need to be alert and ready for the return of Christ. And then you go on and you read the parable of the talents, which is a parable about uh, being faithful as you wait for the return of Christ, being faithful with what God has given In verses 45 and 46, it says, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? Verse 46, Blessed or happy, truly happy, is that slave who his master finds doing what he's been told to do. Um, I've mentioned before also um, something that happened in the history of our country uh, back in the 1780s when the Speaker of the Connecticut House of Representatives uh, was leading a meeting there, and all of a sudden in Hartford, the skies began to get incredibly dark. And some of the men there said, you know, we need to adjourn. We think the end is coming. And his response was, the day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjour- adjournment. If it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. Therefore, I wish that candles be brought. So he basically said, you know, this might be the end or it might not be, but whether it is the end or not, I want to be faithful. I want to do my duty to the end. Now, when I think about what's going on in our world today, it raises the question in my mind, could we be the last generation? Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. There's not enough uh, that's gone on yet to let me know that uh, God is indicating that, yes, we're the last generation. But regardless of whether we're the last generation or not, we're called to be faithful. We're, we're called to do our duty, so to speak. And that's what these verses say, and that's what the Lord Jesus is saying. Be alert to what's going on around you, in your culture, in your country, in the world. And be looking for the signs that I've given you. Read the fig tree. Look for the leaves. Look for the tree to fill itself out. And then you'll know whether or not you're a part of the last generation or not. But regardless of whether you are or not, you need to pray for grace to be faithful. 
You need to understand what it looks like to be faithful. And that's what we're going to talk about as we go through Acts chapter 2 and we look at the picture of the early church. We're going to talk about what does it look like to be a faithful church and faithful Christians regardless of what we're going through or where we might be at any point in history. Now, in contrast to that, he says in verse 48 and 49 that there are those who he characterizes, the Lord Jesus characterizes as evil slaves, who say to themselves in their heart, my master is not coming for a long time, and therefore they begin to beat their fellow slaves and to drink with drunkards, which means they abuse other people and they live their lives just to please themselves. One of the disturbing things, again, highlighting another person that uh, raises questions about uh, their relationship to Christ is you've probably heard about Ravi Zacharias and the controversy around him after his death. He died last year, and before he died, there were some accusations against him with regard to uh, sexual improprieties. They were dismissed largely, um, but after he died, uh, other people came forward and uh, there was an independent investigation that was conducted. His own ministry, uh, RZIM, uh, commissioned that independent um, investigation, and they uh, received the results of it, which, based on the results of the investigation, indicated that he apparently, based on the evidence given, well, had been involved in a long history of sexual immorality in various ways. And it said in Christianity Today, when Ravi Zacharias died in May, he was praised for his faithful witness, his commitment to the truth, and his personal integrity. Now it is clear that offstage, the man so long admired by Christians around the world abused numerous women and manipulated those around him to turn a blind eye. Now, there are those, like like his wife, who would say, I don't believe that report. I don't believe he really did that. Which reminds me of uh, what someone said about George Whitfield. George Whitfield said, I want this put on my tombstone. Here lies G.W. What sort of man he was, the great day will discover. Which means, on Judgment Day, to be perfectly clear, what was true or not true about George Whitfield, who has his own accusers, detractors, just like every leader does, and Ravi Zacharias on the Day of Judgment, it'll be exposed as well, whether or not these were false accusations or true accusations. But the reality is that there are those who claim the name of Christ who live double lives, There are those who claim the name of Christ and are not faithful servants. And that's the point of the passage when it talks at the end about hypocrites, somebody who's playing a game, acting on the outside like a Christian, but living a double life. That double life can be the double life of actually doing things that are not right, or it could be the double life of just portraying yourself as a Christian when in your heart, There's no faith in Christ. There's no love for Christ. There's no desire uh, to please God. Just kind of going through the motions. And so it's a warning that all of us would pray, help me, Father, to be truly faithful 
in my heart and in my life and deliver me from any kind of hypocrisy. Help my life to be one of true integrity, that what I'm portraying on the outside reflects what I'm doing in private. What I'm portraying on the outside reflects what's going on in my heart. Not that I'm perfect by any way, shape, or form, but there's a connection between my heart and what I'm actually doing. And so the Lord Jesus is encouraging us uh, to do that because one way or the other, whether it's in this life or on the day of judgment, it will be exposed what our true allegiance is, who our king really is, whether it's King Jesus or someone or something else. Well, let me just close by encouraging you um, that ultimately faithfulness is an activity of faith. And the faith that we're called to is a faith in the Lord Jesus. And at the heart of that faith in the Lord Jesus is a faith in the love of God for us. That's why at the end of Romans 8, Paul could emphasize the love of God, that there's nothing that we go through that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, because the way that I maintain my faithfulness is by believing that God is still loving me. Because people who walk away don't see God as loving them. They don't see God as the loving God that he promises to be for his people. One of the songs that I like, um, in light of all that's going on in our country these days, um, is a song entitled, Sometimes He Calms the Storm. And I'll just conclude with this. It says... All who sail the sea of faith find out before too long how quickly blue skies can grow dark and gentle winds grow strong. Suddenly fear is like white water pounding on the soul. Still we sail on knowing that our Lord is in control. Sometimes he calms the storm with a whispered peace be still. He can settle any sea, but it doesn't mean he will. Sometimes he holds us close and lets the wind and waves go wild. Sometimes he calms the storm and other times he calms his child. He has a reason for each trial that we pass through in this life. And though we're shaken, we cannot be pulled apart from Christ. No matter how the driving rain beats down on those who hold to faith, a heart of trust will always be a quiet peaceful place. How's your heart this morning? Is it a heart of trust? Is it a peaceful place? Or do you need to fight (laughs) uh, to get to that peaceful place by feeding your soul on the truth? And are you seeking to be faithful to the end, no matter what happens? That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for me. I pray more these days than ever that I would be faithful unto death. And I would encourage you to pray the same thing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would be encouraging to us, that it would warn us in the ways we need to be warned, that it would encourage us to hold fast to you in the ways we need to hold fast to you. And may we be reminded that you love us perfectly as our Father. And we need not 
doubt your love. Grant us grace to hold on to your love day by day, moment by moment, and grant us grace to be faithful in our circumstances for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.